Hi, this is Pastor Tim. When we started putting our podcast online, our intent really was just to serve our own local church family here in Squim, Washington. But it's been interesting over the last few months, we've begun to notice that there are people from other parts of the country and even internationally that are apparently downloading our podcasts. And that's great. If the Lord is using that to encourage you, uh, we are so glad that you're able to do that. Uh, we are kind of curious as to who you are. And so if you are not in our local area, but you've been downloading the podcasts, we'd love to hear from you just to find out who you are and, and really where you're from. If you could drop an email to info at dcchurch.org, we'd really appreciate it. Again, that's info at dcchurch.org. Well, thanks. Here's today's teaching. Well, you know, something that I think brings a smile to the face of every follower of Jesus are these stories, like Bob's, of those unlikely converts. Uh, some of them, the rebels without a cause that turn around, uh, the black sheep, the hard-bitten atheist, uh, or, or people like Bob who have been entrenched in a, a worldview or maybe a false religion that seemingly has owned their life, and yet these unlikely people that unexpectedly experience this complete reversal and become heart-dedicated followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, they don't mock anymore, they don't distort the cross, but they become disciples. And, and with that new faith comes new lives. You heard Bob talk about how after that night, he said, everything changed. And, and if you've been around a while, if you've known others who have gone through those kinds of life changes, you've seen that happen, where what was dark becomes light, uh, this complete reversal. And of course, there are some famous examples. Uh, many of us know of C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor who was a, a committed atheist, so he thought, and then found himself almost against his will drawn toward God, and ultimately became probably one of the 20th century's most effective defenders of the faith. Or uh, maybe somebody like Rosaria Butterfield. I've talked about her before. Rosaria earned her PhD from Ohio State University. Uh, for 10 years, she, she taught in the Women's Studies program at Syracuse, Syracuse University, and her specialty was teaching on queer theory. Uh, she lived in a committed lesbian relationship. She even wrote the Syracuse University policy for same-sex couples. And while she was doing research on the religious right, she was working on an article against the Christian organization Promise Keepers. A lot of guys may remember Promise Keepers when that was a big movement. And in the process of turning out this article, there was a guy named Ken Smith that responded and invited Rosaria into a dialogue with him. And, and it was that friendship with Ken, that friendship combined with her own reading of the Bible, that eventually brought about this most unexpected change in Rosaria's life. She became a follower of Jesus. Uh, a decision that she says resulted in losing everything but the dog, and yet she gained a new life in Christ. She wrote a book about that, conversion titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria is not the person you would have expected to become a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you recognize a name like Lee Strobel. Right? Lee Strobel was this hard-bitten investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, an atheist. 
His wife comes to faith. Lee is really upset that she would kind of mess up what he thought was their perfect lies by bringing religion into it. And he decides that since he's an investigative journalist, the best he can do for her is to debunk her faith by proving to her that it's all silly. And so he sets out on this quest specifically to prove that the resurrection was ridiculous. Except that the more he got into it, the more the facts kept pointing him back toward Christ. And the end result was not that he debunked her faith, but that Lee came to faith. And of course, Lee now has written a whole series of books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for the Creator, The Case for Heaven, because he's become a convinced, committed follower of Jesus. And those stories just scratch the surface. If you read, if you look around, you'll find stories about former skinheads that met Jesus and suddenly become men and women who have love and compassion for people of all races, human traffickers that become defenders of those they once trafficked. Early in the year, we talked about the hymn Amazing Grace and the story of John Newton, who at one time was a slave trader and became one of the leading voices in England that brought about the end of the slave trade because he was a follower of Jesus. Drug dealers get clean. Angry husbands become humble men. The stories are myriad. But perhaps the one that stands at the head of them all is the biblical story of a man named Saul, also known as Paul. Uh, a story that I'm sure many of us know well, but I want to take another look at this morning and spend a little time on an aspect that we may pass over too quickly sometimes. Saul makes his appearance in the New Testament without much fanfare. In fact, if you were making a movie, he comes across as more of a bit part extra in a much bigger drama. Uh, his story appears in the Gospel of, well, not the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. So the Gospel of Luke was the story of Jesus, his life on earth, and then the book of Acts was the continuation where he talks about the life of the early church. And, and the story surrounding that first mention of Saul is the trial of a man named Stephen. Now, Stephen was a follower of Jesus who had been preaching boldly in Jerusalem. And that got him in trouble with the Jewish authorities. They had him arrested. They brought him in for questioning. And rather than apologizing, Stephen takes the opportunity to preach a powerful sermon to these Jewish leaders declaring that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited and now risen Messiah of the Jewish people. Well, that was bad enough in the eyes of these leaders. Uh, many of these men that he was appearing before were probably the same ones who had hatched the plan that had had Jesus crucified. But, but Stephen did more than just proclaim Jesus. He also took the opportunity to publicly condemn those very leaders. And the speech that he gave is long. It's all of Acts chapter 7, if you want to read it. But here's his final statement. This comes out of the New Living Translation, verses 51 through 53 of Acts 7. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law 
even though you received it from the hands of angels. Well, as you might imagine, that didn't set so well with his audience. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. you got to understand how offensive this was to them. He's saying, this Jesus that you put to death, I'm having a heavenly vision right now, and guess where I see him right now? He is standing at the right hand of God the Father, the place of authority and power. In fact, he's standing, I think, in honor of what's happening right here. And with that, they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, the book of Acts is this carefully researched history of the early days of the Christian church based on eyewitness testimony. And as I said, it was written by this man named Luke. He was a medical doctor. Uh, and Luke, though we find, was a very careful historian and also a good writer. He had compiled all the stories. He had listened to all the people. And then he crafted this account. And one of the ways that Luke seems to introduce his audience to major characters in the story, as he tells it, is he first introduces them in very minor, almost offhanded kind of ways. It was a few years ago, I was going through the book of Acts with someone, and this began to stand out to me, this repeating pattern where Luke mentions a character almost in passing and then says nothing more about them until suddenly they become a major player in the story. It's kind of like a movie, you know, where the director sets up a shot so that you catch just a glimpse of someone and, and you're not even sure if they're really part of the story, but then you realize that they're a big part of the story. Okay, so, so here comes Luke's fleeting glimpse scene. Right? We've got the enraged mob. They are dragging Stephen out. They're in a fury. They're going to stone him. And in the middle of all the chaos, Luke shifts his lens over a little bit and catches this one-bit character. Stephen's accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then he has one more little footnote to it. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And that's all he says about Saul at this point. What we know is that Saul was a young guy, and he was not just a passive bystander. We're not told he actually threw any of the rocks, but he was going to hold the coats for the ones who were. And he was in complete agreement. He wasn't offended in the slightest at watching a good man brutally die as his body is pummeled by rocks. And then Luke says nothing more. Instead, he moves right back into the major action of the story. Following up on Stephen's death, it says a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then Luke goes on. He recounts stories involving Philip and Peter, but Paul doesn't show up again until a full chapter later in Acts 9. And when he does, um, 
To keep on with this kind of movie director metaphor, it's kind of like Luke says, meanwhile back at the ranch, right? Here's what goes on, Acts 9-1. But Saul, still breathing threats. Okay, we haven't heard about Saul for a full chapter. He's talked about all these other things, and he says, oh, by the way, that guy, he still is upset. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know specifically what happened between Saul holding coats and Saul asking for arrest warrants. Luke just says that he was still muttering threats. To me, it sounds kind of like road rage, you know? Somebody cuts you off and, and you see that person. They're in their car and you can tell that they are talking to somebody but there's nobody else in the car. And, 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 and they're just getting madder. The, the veins in their neck are bulging, they're red in the face, they're pounding on the steering wheel, they're gunning the engine, and, and you know that this is a driver to avoid. That's kind of the image of Saul. Saul is breathing threats and murder. He is, he is mad. He is looking for an opportunity to take care of these people once and for all. In his mind, these Christians have betrayed everything that he considers to be holy. And, and to have the audacity for them to suggest that devout, orthodox Jews like himself are somehow to blame for the death of their phony Messiah. And more maddening still, the attempt to crush their movement, this wave of persecution that had scattered them, it, it really had backfired. I think when Saul was holding coats as Stephen was being stoned, he was hoping that that was going to be the cataclysmic event that would put an end to this foolishness once and for all. But instead of stomping it out, it was more like those dandelion puffballs. You know, you try to blow the thing out and all you do is you make the problem ten times worse because it goes everywhere. I don't know about you, but I have an ongoing annual war with dandelions. My neighbor doesn't wage war as effectively as I do, and his dandelions come into my yard when I see them. I want to dig them up, I want to poison them. I bought a flamethrower one year and burned some of them, right? It's, I want to eradicate them, but it seems like the more I try to stomp it out, the bigger the problem becomes, and that's the problem that Saul has. They didn't just stomp the problem out, the persecution actually spread the problem out, and now they were everywhere. And so off Saul goes, storming along the Damascus road. He says, if there are any in Damascus, just give me the paperwork and I'll get them. I'll stomp it out there. He's probably going along the Damascus road. He's, he's blasting his horn. He's running other donkeys off the road. This is a man on a mission, right? Until God intervenes. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Wow. Talk about unexpected. Saul had set out to crush what he thought was a ridiculous, fraudulent, heretical movement rooted in this crazy idea that Jesus of Nazareth, a self-appointed rabbi with some kind of massive messiah complex who his superiors had wisely eliminated, that, that that guy had somehow supposedly sprung to life again. And yet, here Saul is finding himself struck down by an uninvited, dramatic vision of none other than that Jesus. A vision so intense that it left him blinded. There was no shaking his head to make it go away. There was no distracting himself. The world just went dark. And Saul was left helpless in the dark for three days to ponder what this all meant. So shaken, we're told he can't even eat or drink. Well, that is all pretty dramatic. And the outcome of the Damascus Road, as we know, would have a profound and lifelong impact on Saul. It actually have a profound implication for all of Christendom. Saul, once the raging enemy of the church, would become Paul, the great defender of the church. A man inspired by God in writing what is the majority of the letters comprising our New Testament. But it's not really Saul that I want to focus on this morning. See, that was unexpected, wasn't it? I, I want to turn the camera on another character who's only mentioned twice in the New Testament. And that is a man named Ananias. The first mention is right here in the middle of Saul's crisis in Acts chapter 9. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, we don't know much about Ananias. The only other mention of him is by Saul himself when he later recounted this same story as he was preaching to a crowd in the city of Ephesus. Here's what he said about Ananias. He says, there was one Ananias a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. He came to me. So that's it. That's all we know. Saul says that Ananias was a Jew who was serious about his faith, uh, devout as you would measure it by the standards of Jewish religious law. Uh, he had a good reputation among the people of Damascus. Now there are some other things I think we can deduce about Ananias, one of those is that he had heard the message of Jesus from some of those displaced Jews who had fled from Jerusalem. How do we know that? 
Well, it's the response that Ananias has to his own vision. Go back to Acts 9. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, speaking of Saul, how, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So what do we learn from this? Well, one, we learned that yes, Ananias is a devout Jew, but he also identifies those who had been persecuted in Jerusalem as saints, not heretics. Saul, certainly prior to this, would not have called those people saints, but Ananias identifies them as saints. And he says that what he knows about the things that happened in Jerusalem are things that he has heard secondhand from those who experienced it. So Ananias himself hadn't come from Jerusalem. He had not been part of that persecution there. And he's worried because he's heard that Saul has come to arrest all who call on Jesus. And Ananias counts himself as one of those. So when the dandelions spread out, Ananias was one of those that the seeds took root in his heart and he had become a follower of Jesus. And his prayer is, Lord, are you sure that you want me to go to that man? I mean, everything I've heard about him is bad news. You want me to go pray for him? You want me to ask for healing for him? Frankly, having that guy blind sounds like a really good idea. You want me to help him regain his sight? Are you trying to get me arrested, Lord? At that moment, I think Ananias was probably having an easier time placing faith in the resurrection of Jesus than he was in the transformation of Saul. A crucified Messiah returning to life was impossible for sure, but Saul, the persecutor of the church, now a follower of Jesus, that seemed double impossible. Well, here's the Lord's answer to Ananias' disbelief. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's okay, Ananias. I have plans for Saul. I have a special mission for him. And I really love this one phrase. He says, uh, he is a chosen instrument of mine. What a way to describe the guy who had held coats while Stephen was being stoned. That is grace. Jesus looks at this raging, misguided, violent man, Saul, and he says, do you see that guy? He may look like nothing more than a big, mean stick to you. But when I look at him, I see a Stradivarius. I see a rare instrument that I'm going to use to lead this incredible symphony of worship. You know, not every instrument in the orchestra is first chair, but an orchestra needs every instrument. God's grace looks on every one of us, and he sees an instrument that he would love to play. Regardless of what we've done in the past, regardless of whether we look like we're all that fit or not, 
God looks at someone like Saul and he says, I look at this guy and I see an instrument that I would love to play. Man, can I make some music with this guy's life. It's significant that Saul, despite all of his training, his passion, his zeal, wasn't in a place, though, where God could use him until he came to the end of himself. In fact, Saul later admitted as much. Years later, speaking of his extensive training and his accomplishments in his prior life, he said that he considered all of those accomplishments to be garbage. They were a waste compared to what he had found in knowing Christ. Now, Saul's training really wasn't a waste. It was something that God used greatly. It's one of the reasons that, that God was able to use Saul the way that he did. But Saul's accomplishments meant nothing until they became God's to do with as he wished. So getting back to Ananias, I love his response. I'm sure he felt incredulous. I'm sure he felt fearful. But look at the next sentence after the Lord tells Ananias what to do. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He didn't know what the outcome was going to be. He simply knew what God had told him to do, and that was enough. He went to Saul. So what happened? Well, Acts 9, 17 and 18. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, I grew up in Pentecostal churches. And could I just say that the way I often saw people prayed for was a bit louder, <laughs> uh, more flamboyant than what Ananias does here. I mean, you read this, and Ananias' prayer sounds about as rousing as a court summons. I mean, there's no drama to it. There's no big flashy language. It's just 33 years, and you could really boil it down to this. He just says, um, Saul, Jesus sent me so that you can see and be filled with the Spirit. That's it. There's no shouting. There's no dramatic gestures. There's just this simple statement of obedience. Now, there's nothing wrong with heartfelt, passionate prayer. It's okay to pound on the doors of heaven sometimes, but... I just want to say that God is not moved by our volume or our theatrics, especially if any part of it is a hidden goal to be seen by others or to impress them with our fervency. Ananias didn't try to impress anyone. He simply prayed in faith, and he let God do the work. And the result? Well, Paul could see. This time he could really see. He could see what he had been spiritually blind to for so long. And having seen, you'll see one of the reasons that God could use Saul so greatly. Once he saw, he acted. He was baptized. He immediately made a public profession that his old life was gone. He was stepping into this new life as a full-hearted follower of Jesus. And then he had a meal and he got to work. 
It says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Imagine the guy that came with arrest warrants to go into synagogues and root Christians out, immediately goes into those same synagogue to say, you know what, I'm not here to arrest anybody. I'm here to affirm to you that Jesus is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And as they say, the rest is history. So here's the question that I've pondered. Why put Ananias in the story? I mean, God had already demonstrated that he was more than willing to invade Saul's life without any outside help, right? I mean, angry, unstoppable, raging lunatic, on his way down the road, then suddenly, bam, blinding light from heaven, vision, voice from above, and Saul is stopped dead in his tracks. So, who needs Ananias? Why insert him in the story? God's already proven he could insert it and take care of it on his own, hasn't he? Uh, who is Ananias anyway? I mean, he's a good guy who loved God, but that's about all we know. He never went on a missionary journey with Saul like Barnabas or Timothy. We have no record he ever visited Jerusalem and met with the apostles. So why Ananias? Let me suggest four things that I think we do know about Ananias. Four reasons I think God chose him to be the right man at the right moment for Saul. The first is that Ananias loved Jesus. The story affirms that he counted himself as one of Jesus' people. He was a follower. The second thing is, Ananias loved people. We're told that he had a good reputation among the people in his town. You get a good reputation when you treat people well, and you treat people well if you value them, if you love them. Jesus once said the two greatest commandments were to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. Ananias was a man who seems to have lived his life by those two great commands. The third thing is that Ananias was in the right place at the right time. His faith in Christ, coupled with his place of respect within the Jewish community there in Damascus, it made him the ideal bridge to act as a character witness for Saul. You realize God had to pick the right guy to go in there, because not only was he going to help Saul, he was also going to be the guy to help make introductions to the other believers. And so Ananias was the right man to act as that bridge. In fact, I think it struck me as I was going over this story, uh, it was strategic that God allowed Ananias to see something physical fall from Saul's eyes. I've wondered about this over the years, like why the scales falling from the eyes? I get that his vision is being restored, but, but why this rather physical manifestation of it? But I thought, you know, I think this was really for Ananias so that he could be a witness to others to say, this guy really does see. It's one thing for a guy with no physical outward manifestation to say, oh yeah, I've changed my mind. I'm, I'm a follower now. You know, you can't be wondering, is he really? Or is he just using it as a way to kind of sneak in and get more information? But, but Ananias saw something physical happen, and he could say to others, I saw scales fall from Saul's eyes. This man sees in a whole new way. He gets it. Ananias wouldn't be the only one surprised at this idea of Saul being a brother in Christ. 
I think we see the same parallel with the Apostle Peter. Remember when Peter gets the call to go to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile, and as he's there and, and he's preaching the gospel to them, something Peter wasn't sure he was supposed to do. He didn't think that the gospel was for the Gentiles, and yet God makes it very clear, no, you go to the Gentiles, you preach to them. And when the Holy Spirit comes into that place to those believers, Peter sees them have the same kind of physical experience that he and the Jewish disciples had had on the day of Pentecost. That wasn't to say that everybody has to have this experience, but God wanted Peter to see people he wasn't sure were part of the family. He wanted them to see that, yes, they are having the same experience. It is the same God, the same Spirit that's being poured out on all of you. I think in the same way, God said, Ananias, I want you to see something. I want you to see the change that has happened inside of Saul. The fourth thing that made Ananias the right guy was that Ananias was willing to go when God called him. He had questions, he had fears, he had heard all about this crazy radical Pharisee. He'd probably been worried for some time that he was going to be on the arrest list when this guy showed up. But when God made it clear that he had a job for Ananias to do, Ananias did it. He wasn't flashy about it. He didn't try to impress anyone. He simply went and did what God asked him to do. And then God used Ananias to bring about the most unexpected thing, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the man who became known as one of the greatest apostles of the gospel. So here's a related question. Why does God use anyone? Why would God use you? Because God's plan always involves God's people. It just blows my mind, really, to think that God wants to make you and me integral parts of his plan. He could do it on his own, but, but for some reason, he wants us involved in the process. All I can tell you is the gospel is relational through and through. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you find that God did not consider a perfect man living in isolation in a perfect garden to be a good thing. God took one look and he said, this is not good. And he created another human, a human very different from Adam and yet perfectly formed to complete Adam. Think about it. Mankind was not complete with one perfect person. In fact, that person wasn't perfect until he was in relationship with a very different person. And when sin came, the thing that it did was it brought separation, not just from God, but between people as well. The gospel is the story of God bringing about a new creation, restoring things to what he intended, and restoring relationship between himself and rebellious people, you and me. That's the grace of adoption and restoring the relationship between people. That is the church. We might call it the grace of incorporation that he calls us together. God did not let Saul become a lone ranger Christian. He didn't get his sight back until he was in relationship with another believer. God sent Ananias on a mission Ananias never expected. So here are some takeaways from the story of Ananias. The first I'd say is, don't give up on the Sauls in your life. 
I don't know if Ananias ever prayed for Saul's salvation or not. I'm sure Saul was in his prayers one way or another. You know, Lord, protect me from that guy. Uh, from a human perspective, praying for Saul to see Jesus probably seemed like wasted effort. But God had ways of reaching Saul's heart that Ananias could never have imagined. And I just say that maybe you have a Saul in your life. I've got a couple in my life. People that I am sure are never going to get it. Nothing would ever turn them around. They seem so hard and distant from Jesus, but I just say, don't give up on them. Keep praying. Don't lose sight of the fact that God can move seemingly immovable hearts in the most unexpected ways. Second takeaway for me is if God tells you to go, go. Uh, most of us will probably never have a vision like the one God gave to Ananias. I have known people that God has spoken in very specific, dramatic ways, but, but that hasn't been my experience, and I don't think it's experience for most of us. But often God's call is these quieter promptings in our heart. It's the prompting to an act of kindness, the prompting to write a note or invite a friend for coffee or share a book. And, and maybe you're thinking, who, me? Uh, reach out to him or reach out to her? Maybe God is asking you like Ananias to just take a step of faith and trust that he is working in ways that you can't see. Now, for some of us, maybe the step that God is calling us to is to take a step back. Some of us want our loved ones to know Jesus so badly that we've actually become the obstacle. Uh, we've gotten desperately pushy rather than letting the Holy Spirit convict and draw those loved ones to faith. Uh, instead, we've decided we're just going to drag them by the hair and drag them into the kingdom. And, and I just got to remind you that you're not the Holy Spirit. Ananias' obedience was only effective because God had gone ahead of him and prepared Saul's heart. The third thing I would say is that being in community with the body of Christ matters. That is perhaps an important reminder as we come out of this prolonged season of isolation from COVID. Uh, and if you're watching from home, we are glad that you are. And some of you have health issues, other reasons that keep you from coming in person. And so joining online is great. But there's a danger, I think, that some of us may have decided that we can just do Jesus on our own and avoid the messiness of relationships because I'm sorry, you guys, but you are a mess, okay? <laughs> Just easier to stay home, pick out a few of your favorite preachers on YouTube, bring up your favorite music on Spotify, enjoy a cup of coffee, look out at the mountains, and figure that that's enough church for this week. Amen, yeah. <laughs> You're here, so I know you don't believe that. You know, attending church on a Sunday morning is not the end all of being a follower of Jesus, but being in relationship with believers, real, physical, I see you, you see me, I can serve you, you can serve me, that kind of relationship is vital. God sent Ananias to Saul. The church is God's people in relationship with each other. So, keep praying for your souls. If God is telling you to go, go. And 
wherever you go, don't do it alone. Who knows, maybe God is going to use an unexpected person like Ananias or you to help an unexpected person like Saul or even Bob to see Jesus. You never know what unexpected things God may do.